Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. So let's get into our Bible reading. So it's from Genesis 34. Um, Now Dinah, the daughter Leah, had born to Jacob went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah because um, a daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his uh, his sons were in the fields with the livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields. As soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We cannot do such a thing. We cannot give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among, among you and become one, of, one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man who was most honoured of all was his father's family. Lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon, Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of their city and out in the fields. They carried off their wealth and all the women and children, taking as plunder everything in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble to me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. 
We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Well, this morning I want to start by inviting you all to close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, I want you to think back to some of the very best moments of your life. Maybe it's the moment you became a Christian, gave your life to the Lord Jesus. Maybe it's a time when you got your dream job. Maybe it's when your football team won a premiership. I have no idea what that's like, but I've heard it's good. (laughs) Maybe it's your wedding day you're picturing in your mind right now. Maybe it's the day they launched Krispy Kreme in Australia. It's a wonderful day. Or perhaps it's the very moment, first moment you held your son or your daughter. Maybe it's a dedication like we've had this morning. These are wonderful moments, they're unforgettable moments, and they are memories that we cherish forever. While your eyes are still closed, I now want you to think back to some of the more difficult times in your life. For some, you may not want to think back to some of the worst moments because they're too painful and you've moved on, but I think all of us can think of at least one difficult time. Maybe it's when we lost a loved one. Maybe it's a time we were hurt physically or spiritually, mentally or emotionally. Maybe it's that moment when we made a big mistake and we wish we could jump in a time machine and change what we did. Maybe it's a time in life of deep disappointment, disappointment with someone or something in your life. Maybe it's when you lost that dream job. Or perhaps it's when you felt the pain of loneliness. These are difficult things to deal with. You can open your eyes again this morning. What did we just do? You might think, well, we just did a corny exercise in a church service. But what we really did is we did life. Because life is ups and downs, isn't it? And everything in between, it's highs and it's lows. It's triumph and it's tragedy. It's brokenness and it's wholeness. It's order at times and it's chaos at others. And all those things can be experienced in a 24-hour period of your life, but if not, at least over the journey of our lives, we experience those things. I love that the story of the Bible is so relatable. I love that it reflects our everyday experience. God's Word is not just a book filled with saint-like people who get everything right. It's not just filled with stories, packed full of stories of victory and love and peace and joy, although it does have some of those. I love that God's Word doesn't shy away from recording the highs and lows and the order and the chaos and at times the dysfunction of the lives of people within this book. And I think it makes God's Word incredibly relatable for us. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin entered God's very good creation, there has been this brokenness that's kind of weaved throughout the story of history, both in Scripture and both in through our experience as well. We talked about this last week. It's kind of weaved throughout our story, but at the same time, running parallel with that is the character and the grace of God. And there are times in our life where the grace of God intersects with the brokenness of humanity, and they are moments of wonder and beauty in our lives. But I don't know if you've noticed this, like I have, those moments sometimes seem to be fleeting. They're here and we enjoy them and then they're gone. And they're kind of hard to reproduce at times. They come and they go. Once again, our experience is consistent with what we read in the lives of people in Scripture. At the end of the last chapter, we saw an absolutely beautiful story of reconciliation between two brothers, Jacob and Esau. 
There was repentance. There was forgiveness and grace and love demonstrated between these two brothers whose relationship had been torn apart for over 20 years due to conflict. But in the story last week, they came back together in an incredible way. This is one of those wonderful supernatural moments where God intervened in their lives and the grace of God intersected with the brokenness of these two brothers. And as we consider their story, we consider the fact that it wasn't just wonderful for their relationship, but it was also a significant moment in the great plan of God. If you remember back in our Genesis series, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, you may remember the promises that God made to a man called Abram. He promised Abram that he would be blessed, that his name would be great, that he'd become a great nation, and through him, all nations on earth would be blessed. Incredible promises. Well, Jacob, the guy we're talking about today, he's the grandson of Abraham. So you've got Abraham, who the promises of God passed from Abraham to his son Isaac, and then passed from Isaac to his son Jacob. And now the central character of the story is Jacob, and it's through this man that the promises of God will come to pass. Now part of the promise given to them is that they would have a land, and at the end of chapter 33, Jacob had returned to that land. He'd been away from the land for 20 years. He'd fleed for his life because of his brother's rage and anger. But now 20 years later, um, he's come back. He's returned. And so at the end of the last chapter, for 100 pieces of silver, Jacob bought a plot of land in Canaan from the sons of Hamor where he pitched his tent. And so at this stage of the story, he's settled in the promised land of Canaan. He'd reconciled with his family He was at peace with all these other nations he'd been called to bless. And it looks like the promises of God are finally back on track. They're right where they're supposed to be. God has been at work in his life and in this story. And so last week, our story of Jacob finished on one of those highs. It's a mountaintop experience, one of those great times in life where everything's reconciled and everything seems to be in order. And it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. And sometimes we have those moments in life as well. And I think I'm not alone in wishing that all of life was a mountaintop experience. That life always felt like things were going good and things were in their right order and their right place. But I think you'll agree that we all know that life is not always spent on the mountaintop. There's always valleys as well. And we see that in this story as well. From the glorious high of chapter 33, we immediately crash down to a devastating low in chapter 34. Dinah, Jacob's precious daughter that he had with his wife Leah, goes out to visit the women in this new land. And in verse 2, it says, When Sheshem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and he raped her. This morning, Alison has shared about some avenues of support for survivors of sexual assault, as well as some statistics around how big this issue is in our local community and in our country. And I've got to say, it's tragic that this is still such a massive issue today. It's an absolute tragedy, and it's a blight on our society that this is still happening. As I said last week, one of the benefits of preaching through books of the Bible is that it brings us to uncomfortable and difficult and controversial issues But they also, we find, are very relevant topics. And when we come to issues like the one today, it gives us an opportunity to work through them as a church. And for us in this region, this topic of sexual assault is a very relevant topic. In some statistics I saw this week, it said that 28% of women, one of four women, and about 
um, 18% of men, one in five, will experience sexual abuse before the age of 16. Other statistics in our region show that one in four houses are currently experiencing some sort of domestic abuse. That's an absolute epidemic. As we walk through our neighbourhoods, they often look so peaceful and so nice, but we never know what's really happening behind closed doors. As I'm out walking my disobedient dog some mornings, I count the houses off. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And as I look back down the roads and the streets that I've walked my dog on, it's a reminder of the brokenness of humanity that exists all the way around us. And for me, it's a cause to prayer. It causes me to stop. And some mornings when I'm walking the dog, I just pray for God's miraculous intervention in the lives of precious families in our community. And I'd encourage all of us to be praying regularly for transformation transformation in this community as well. In fact, I think that's why God's placed us here in the officer community. I don't think it's any accident that Follow Baptist Church exists, and I believe he's placed us here to represent God and to step in these dark places and bring the light of Jesus in any way we possibly can. And it's a wonderful privilege, and it's a huge responsibility. And I want to encourage us to be people that never shrink away from that, but embrace who we are in Christ and the healing and wholeness that we have experienced in him. I think one of the other ways to see transformation happen is, like I said a moment ago, not to shrink back from this stuff, but to face up to the reality and the bigness of these problems and to confront and address the issues. And in today's passage, the Bible causes us to do just that. Now, having said all of that, I understand this is a very serious and a very sensitive topic. And I'm well aware that if the statistics are right, there is likely to be people in this room who have been impacted either directly or indirectly by sexual assault. In fact, I know from some of the stories that you've shared that this is the case. And personally speaking, on both sides of our own family, we've had people directly on the receiving end of sexual abuse. And so I've seen firsthand the devastating effects it has on people's lives for many years and how hard it is for those affected. So I think once again, before we continue this morning, we need to pause and just spend a moment in prayer. Because I know there'll be people that find this very difficult, either in the auditorium today or listening on the podcast. And so let's just stop and let's just commit this to the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today with a challenging issue, fully aware of the brokenness that we live in, and the evil and pain and wickedness that occurs in our world every single day. We're reminded that we live in part of a broken world. And as we discuss this matter this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts. We ask for wisdom. We ask for conviction. We ask for healing in the hearts of those whose lives have been damaged by abuse of any form. We pray that you would help them to find the support needed both within the church and outside of the church to heal. We pray for your comfort and peace that passes all understanding to be a daily reality in their lives. And while we have struggles in this life, today as a faith community, we look forward to your return and the future hope we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to cover the content of this chapter today by posing and hopefully answering three questions that I think need to be answered. 
The questions are, where was God? The second question is, why did this happen? And the third question is, how should God's people respond when it comes to abuse and sexual abuse in our everyday lives? And so the first question is, where was God? Now we see as we look through the story that God has clearly been at work in this story, in Jacob's life. But now in this incident, we don't see him. Where is God in the brokenness of our lives? Where is he in the suffering? Where was God when Dinah was assaulted and why didn't he intervene? If God's a God of love, why is there so much suffering in the world? These are the sort of questions that are stumbling blocks for both people of faith and those who have no faith at all. As Christians, when we go through difficulties, it often leaves us with unanswered questions that cause us to doubt God's goodness and maybe even for some people to doubt his existence. And for people of no faith, I think suffering and evil are probably the greatest critique of God and of faith. People look at the world and all the issues and think to themselves, how could there possibly be a God when he allows all of this stuff to happen? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I find that people are very quick to blame God for all the bad things in life, but very, very slow to thank him for the good ones if they do at all. Years ago, I saw a cartoon strip, and I've shared this before, but it's always stuck with me. It had four frames in this cartoon strip. And the first frame was a devastating earthquake. And the caption was, the hand of God. The second frame was a tsunami that had wiped out a village. And the caption was, the hand of God. The third one was a cyclone tearing apart a town. And the caption was, the hand of God. The fourth one was a beautiful scene. Mountains, streams, the birds were chirping, the sun was shining, everything was how it should be, and the caption was, isn't Mother Nature great? And it's so typical, isn't it? I think that little cartoon represents the attitude of so many people in life, and I see it reflected in places like social media, where people are so quick to blame God for the state of the world, and they ridicule people of faith. They call God the sky fairy or the imaginary friend, but at the same time, they blame him for all the bad things that happen in the world. It's kind of hard to have an imaginary friend and then blame them for all the bad things that happen in the world at the same time. You kind of can't have both of those things. And yet this is what people to do when they're looking for someone to blame. And so the question for us as Christians is where is is God in the midst of all of this? And is he responsible for the bad things that happen? Once again, I think the book of Genesis as an entirety is is very helpful with some of these questions. If you think all the way back to chapter 1, You remember that God created the earth and everything in it, the universe, the stars, all that stuff. And at the end of his creating, on the sixth day, he he finished and he looked at his creation and he, he had this statement. He said, everything I've created is very good. It's very good. Now, within that creation, he gave humanity the pinnacle of his creation, loving guidelines to live by. This was how to be in relationship with a holy God. And it was a a great bunch of guidelines. And within those guidelines, there was incredible freedom. There was provision. There was relationship with one another and relationship with God in the garden. And it was a place of incredible love and incredible joy. Now, if humanity had obediently and lovingly followed God and obeyed these guidelines in relationship with him, our experience would still be very good. 
But if you look around, if you read the story of Dinah, if you look around in our own lives, it's clear to see that so much of what we experience could not be described as very good. In fact, sometimes it's just downright evil, disgusting, heartbreaking and devastating. Some of the stuff that we have to endure in our world. Now, in all the freedom of the garden, there was only one condition that God gave Adam and Eve. This is not to eat from the one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree that is known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, if you eat from that tree, you've got complete freedom, but if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Now, I think the tree was put there because God wanted people to choose to love him. God could have created a bunch of robots that just said, yes, sir, no, sir, and did everything he said, but he created humanity in his image. And he gave us as human beings the ability to have feelings and emotions and intelligence. And he gave us the ability to make decisions. Adam and Eve deliberately chose to disobey God and do things their own way. They ate from the tree and their choice had consequences. And in a similar way, our choices today have consequences as well. Now, if God could intervene and he could stop all the bad stuff happening, no doubt he could do that. He is God. But if God was to intervene in our world and stop everything bad from happening, he would have to limit our ability to make choices. Because we often do things and make choices that may be pleasurable or enjoyable, but they're ultimately destructive for us and for others. So the very same people who can't understand why God allows bad things to happen in our world and blame him when they do, are the very same people who would strongly object and kick up a big fuss if their so-called freedoms of choice were limited, not realising that their decisions, both big and small, all contribute to the brokenness that we all experience. All of us make decisions every day. We'll make decisions today, tomorrow, this week, next month, next year. We all make decisions that impact other people's lives. And other people make decisions that impact our lives and the collective consequence of those often sinful decisions are what we are left experiencing in the world today. God is not responsible for that. We are. We've chosen to do things our own way. You'll notice in today's chapter that God does not get a single mention. Not a single mention in this story. And the reason for that is not because he's absent, it's because he's not responsible for the decisions that were made. God did not tell Sheshem to do what he did. God did not approve or endorse what happened to Dinah. This is a story of a man operating independently of God, choosing to do what pleased him rather than choosing to do what pleased God. God did not orchestrate these events, although he did allow them to occur as a result of the decisions that were made by Sheshem. In the garden, Adam and Eve made decisions to do things their way and not God's way, and by extension, Sheshem is now doing the same thing. And the consequences are obvious in the hurt and destruction that they cause in Dinah and her family's lives. And so where was God? Was he absent For Dinah, is he absent in the difficult times of our lives? And the answer is clearly from Scripture and from our experiences that no, he's not. He promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. Most of you would be familiar with the Footprints poem. Maybe you've seen it or read about it. If you haven't, let me tell you what it's all about. There's a person looking back on their life and their life is represented by two sets of footprints in the sand. 
And as they look back at the sand, they notice that there's, there's God, his set of footprints, and their sort of footprints, and they're walking side by side. But when it gets to the difficult times of life, they notice in those seasons of life, there was only one set of footprints. Now, this troubled the person as they look back on their life, they couldn't understand. And they question God. God, why in the most difficult times of life is there only one set of footprints? Why would you abandon me when life got tough? And God said to his child, you misunderstand. When you see one set of footprints, they're not the times that I abandoned you. They're the times that I carried you. And this is what God does in the difficult times. God is not absent in the difficult times of life. He's ever-present help in time of need. And his heart breaks when we hurt and when we hurt others, even though it's a consequence of our own decisions, our own sin, and essentially the mess we have is what we deserve. But his love is demonstrated for us in this, that while we were still sinners, operating in the mess we created, Christ died for us. God didn't just leave us in the mess we deserve because it's the mess we created. Instead, he left the glory of heaven and he incarnated himself in our mess. That is incredible love. In that mess, he showed us how to live. Not only that, but he willingly paid the price that each of us deserved to pay for the decisions we have made on the cross. He died in our place so that we didn't have to pay the penalty of our own sins, but instead we could find forgiveness in him. That is the glorious truth of the gospel. So where's God in the mess? Well, he entered it. And he now gives us the hope that we can be rescued from the mess we've created, that we can find redemption. And he promises when he returns that all the sin and all the mess and all the pain and all the suffering we experience will be replaced with lasting peace and joy as he redeems and restores all things to himself. That is the glorious hope that we have in the gospel. We are currently in a giant mess, but it's a temporary one when we are in Christ. And that's a wonderful hope to have. The Bible never guarantees that bad things won't happen to us as people of faith. It never guarantees that we'll have an easy life. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But what is guaranteed is that he is with us no matter what we go through. So where is God? He's with us. He's providing comfort and a living hope even in the mess. He was with Dinah in her pain and he's with us in ours. And so if God is not responsible for what happened, the question remained, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, I think we've kind of already answered it. It happened because of sin. And that sounds very simplistic. And some of you may think that's an oversimplistic answer. But I want to tell you this morning that there's nothing simplistic about sin. Sin has infiltrated God's very good creation and has caused widespread destruction ever since Adam and Eve first rebelled against God in the garden. And sin works its way out in the book of Genesis in different ways and in our own lives every day as well. And the impact of sin can be absolutely devastating. And in this part of the story, sin manifests itself in this form and this issue of sexual assault. In Genesis 34, we read about this young girl, Dinah, who was the victim of sexual assault. She was Jacob's daughter, and from what we read in Scripture, she was no older than 14 years of age. One day, she was out innocently walking in her community on her way to meet up with some other women, and she finds herself attacked along the way and sexually assaulted by a man called Sheshem. 
Now, Sheshem's father, Hamor, was the ruler of the area, and they are the family who Jacob had purchased land from when he returned to Canaan. And so these families were actually known to each other. Sheshem is clearly the perpetrator. And what he does is evil and wrong, and there's no other way to describe it. And so let's be clear here this morning. In the story, Dinah is the victim. In some of the commentaries I read this week, some commentators apportioned some of the blame on Dinah. One commentary said that she should, Dinah should, have, should not have been so familiar with the women of the land. Another said that she wandered off without letting anyone know, and by implication, she carries some of the blame. And I've got to be honest and say that I disagreed with those conclusions, and they made me feel very uneasy for two main reasons. The first one is that the text doesn't appear to apply that at all. It simply says, in exact words, that Dinah went out to visit the women of the land. She may have been going out to have a cup of tea. She may have been going to meet her new neighbours. She may have been going to be a blessing to these nations that God had called them to be a blessing to. We don't know why she went out, but the text doesn't imply that in any way she's to blame, and so we should never make that assumption that Dinah was in any way to blame for what happened to her. The second reason I felt really uneasy about it is because there's never any justification for rape or any kind of sexual assault or any kind of abuse for that matter. And it's important to be clear that Dinah is innocent in this situation and Sheshem is clearly the perpetrator and there is no excuse and there is no justification for his actions. It is never okay to do what Sheshem did. To abuse someone in any way is absolutely unacceptable and to force yourself upon another person without their explicit consent is wrong and there is no justification for it. It's not that Sheshem did this, but Dinah, it's Sheshem did this full stop and it's wrong and it's evil. If you're here today or listening on the podcast and you have been or are currently suffering abuse at the hands of another person, as your pastor, I want to clearly say that that is never okay. It's not your fault. You don't deserve it. You should, have, you should not have to keep quiet and you should never have to just put up with it. In the last few weeks, we've spoken about reconciliation uh, throughout the story of Jacob and Esau particularly. And it's obviously God's ultimate desire that we are reconciled in our relationships. But I want to clarify something this morning and clearly state that there are some times when that is just not possible. And it's not possible for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's no remorse or repentance on behalf of the person who has done the wrong thing. And the second reason it may not be possible is because it's not safe to put yourself in a situation that will cause you to be in danger in your life. And in those situations, all we can really do as God's people is forgive, pray for a miracle in that person's character and life, or to simply trust them into the hands of a just God who sees everything that happens and will one day hold them to account. Once again, as your pastor, I want to make it clear, I would never encourage you to stay in a house or a workplace or a church or any situation where you are at risk of abuse or further abuse. This morning I want to address something that may be a little bit awkward here today, and that is this, that if the stats show that there are likely to be survivors of abuse in this room, the unfortunate truth is that there may almost... almost certainly be some perpetrators. 
And maybe this morning, if that's you, you're feeling uncomfortable right now. And I'm sorry to say that I don't feel sorry about that at all. In fact, I think it's a very good thing. Because any sort of abuse, whether it's verbal, physical, emotional or sexual, is cowardly, it's shameful and it's unacceptable in God's sight. It's not a cheery sermon, is it? But it's the truth. So let there be no confusion about that. My prayer for you today is if you are a perpetrator, that God this morning would be convicting you by his Holy Spirit. And that conviction would be followed by genuine repentance. And repentance would be followed by change. And change would be followed by healing for you and most importantly for those who your behaviour has impacted. That is my prayer this morning. Why did this happen to Dinah? It happened because of the reality of sin and the brokenness of one man who decided to do what pleased him but not what was right in the eyes of God. And so finally this morning, how should we respond as God's people? This is probably the most important part of the whole message. How do we respond as God's people when this happens? And we know that it has. Not here in this church, but in the church around the world, this has happened over and over again. And so how do we respond as God's people? Well, in the text, there are two people that show us how we shouldn't respond. And the first one is Jacob. How should we respond as God's people? Well, not like Jacob, because Jacob responded with apathy. Verse 5, when Jacob heard that his daughter, get that in your mind for a second, his daughter Dinah, had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Jacob had just had in previous chapters an encounter with God that was transforming. He was a different person. But he doesn't respond to this tragic event the way he should have. And sometimes good people get it wrong. And Jacob clearly got it wrong in this story. You see, the problem was this, that Dinah was the daughter of Leah. Leah was Jacob's first wife, but not his favourite wife. His favourite wife was Rachel. And so in Jacob's eyes, it meant that Dinah didn't really matter. And this is absolutely dreadful. That a young woman created in the image of God, precious and valuable to him, is not treasured in the same way by her earthly father. And yet it's the story of so many young men and women today. And it's a challenge for us as fathers and as mothers here today to love our children and spouses in a way that demonstrates how precious they are to us and, and most importantly how precious they are to God. We know that Dinah wasn't loved that way because of the apathy and indifference of Jacob's response. After hearing the news, he didn't rush to find her. He didn't care enough to support her. He did nothing about it. In recent years in Australia, we've had the Royal Commission into abuse in institutions and in the church. And what has come to light about the history of so many churches and clergy has truly shocked and appalled us. No event in recent history has damaged the credibility and mission of the church as much as this scandal. What has come to light is shameful and almost unimaginable that it's occurred. But equally, no church event has caused so much damage in people's lives than the horrors of what occurred at the hands of predominantly men who claim to be representatives of God. What these people did caused horrific hurt and heartbreak in people's lives, but what was almost as shocking as the acts themselves was the response of so many churches who were more interested in sweeping it under the carpet for the sake of the perpetrators than they were for care and justice for the innocent survivors of abuse. 
It was an appalling response, one that should never, ever be repeated. How could the church have been so apathetic and so dishonest when it comes to something that is clearly so wrong? When these things occur, we should never act with apathy like Jacob, but with proactivity to compassionately care for the survivors of abuse and to bring the perpetrators to justice. How should God's people respond? Well, first of all, not like Jacob. But secondly, we should also not respond like Jacob's sons, who responded with rage. Jacob responded with apathy, but his sons responded with deceit and with rage. In response to the Royal Commission, We've seen an outpouring of righteous anger and a call for justice, and I think you'll agree that's completely understandable and a natural response to the evil that's occurred. I think it's a good thing to have a righteous anger when these sort of evil things happen. But there's also been an unrighteous rage and hatred for not only the perpetrators, but also towards the church as a whole. Often in our circumstances, our initial response is to be a bit like these brothers. We want to respond with anger and rage and perhaps even revenge. And clearly that's not the right response. James chapter 1, verse 20 says, Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so what we see in these sons is an unrighteousness that causes further damage to people's lives and to the mission of God. After Dinah's rape, Sheshem's dad, Hamor, came to visit with Jacob, and he had a proposal that would allow his son Sheshem to marry Dinah because Sheshem had said to his dad, Get me this girl as my wife. He's not really a charmer, is he? Not the sort of guy that you'd want to hand over your daughter to. In exchange for this proposal, he offered Jacob the freedom to settle in their land to live, to trade and acquire property. In other words, he was trying to buy them off and by accepting this offer, as Dinah's brother say in the very last verse of this chapter, Jacob was treating his daughter like a prostitute. Sheshem was desperate in his desire for Dinah and he offered to do absolutely anything. He said, name your price and I'll pay it as long as I can take Dinah as my wife. Meanwhile, Dinah's brothers were out in the field and they heard secondhand, not from their father, but from someone else, what had happened to their sister. And in verse 7, like every good brother should, it says they responded and they were shocked and furious. And I think we can completely understand that. They were probably furious with the perpetrator, Sheshem. They were probably furious with their dad, who'd done nothing about it. And so when they arrived, they contained themselves enough to immerse themselves in the negotiations that were happening between Jacob and the perpetrator, Sheshem. And in verse 13, it says, Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Sheshem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who's not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all of your males. Then we will give you our daughters and we'll take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and we'll go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Sheshem. The young man, who was the most honoured of all his father's family, lost no time in doing what they said. In other words, he went straight to Dr. Snip and he had it done straight away. It says because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Sheshem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. Now imagine having to go to the men of the city with this proposal. They essentially get to the gate, all the people gather, and they say, hey, guess what, we've got good news and we've got bad news. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? 
Give us the good news. The good news is my son gets to marry Dinah. Everyone's like, woo what's the bad news? You're all getting circumcised. Boo, you know, like. Instant joy replaced with immediate pain. Circumcision, from what I've heard, is reportedly very painful for adults. In fact, it's said to be debilitating. And I think all the guys here can probably imagine or feel the pain. It would not be a pleasant experience. And really, that was the brother's deceitful plan all along. They had no intentions of living up to any of their words. All they had on their mind was rage and revenge. And as all the men were struggling in their pain, debilitated after their little procedure, Simeon and Levi entered their unsuspecting city. They put Hamer and Sheshem to the sword and they killed every single male in the city and then took off with all of the possessions. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, yeah, go get them. That's not the right response. Jacob's apathetic response was not the right thing to do. But the brother's response of rage was also wrong. These nations were the very ones that God had called them to be a blessing to, and instead in their rage they had gone in and slaughtered the city. And just like the royal commission has caused the church to be on the nose, Jacob says in verse 30 that Levi and Simeon's rage had caused them to become a stench in the nostrils of the very people they were meant to be a blessing to. At the end of his life, when it came to the blessing of his sons, Jacob pronounced judgment over these two brothers rather than blessing. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 5, he said, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they please. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. We see from Jacob and his sons that apathy and rage are not the ways to respond. And so how should we as God's people respond? Well, I want to finish with three very basic and very quick applications. When it comes to abuse, we should take it seriously. We should show empathy and we should live differently. First of all, we should take it seriously. As a church, even though we're only four years old, we take what's happened in Australia very seriously. By God's grace, in our short history, followers never had any incidents of abuse and we're determined to do everything we can to make this a safe place for everyone who attends. The church, capital C, has lost trust and credibility and we should be eager to do whatever it takes to ensure that what has happened in the past never happens again in the future. And so here at Follow, every single volunteer is required to get a working with children's check. And I've been in churches that have complained about getting working with children's checks. Don't be one of those people. If it takes us 15 minutes to go to a post office and get a working with children check, that's 15 minutes well spent if it's going to show our community as part of our mission that we take seriously what's happened and we don't want it to happen ever again. Not only do we have working with children's checks, our pastors have police checks. We do all we can to train our volunteers and leaders around safe practices. At our AGM this morning, we're appointing another new safe concerns person. It's a person that if you have any concerns about abuse or anything that's happening in the church that's not right, you can go and talk to them confidentially. Not only that, but we're voting today on entering into the BUV redress scheme, which makes a contribution to support the historical survivors of abuse. All of these things may take work, they'll take sacrifice, 
but they show that we take this issue seriously because we're determined to care for survivors and ensure that it never happens again. And so we should take it seriously. Second of all, we should show empathy. Empathy would never, ever include covering up abuse. That is the most unempathetic thing you can do. So we should show empathy. If you are a survivor of abuse, I want to say today that our heart breaks for you, that we love you, that we pray for you, and that we're sorry that this ever occurred in your life. We'd love to support you going forward, to care for you, and to pray for you anytime you need us to. We encourage you, as Alison said before, not to be silent, even if you've held on to it for many, many years, but to come forward for help, to get support both inside the church and outside of it, and to find healing through God's love and the embrace of Christian community. And so please don't hesitate to reach out for help. And so we should take it seriously, we should show empathy, and finally we should live differently. Unfortunately, we can't change what's happened. It would be great to go back in a time machine and short-circuit all those people that were doing those things, but we can't go back. We can't change what's happened, but we can live differently so it doesn't occur again. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy... Let me tell you, when we're living holy lives, that doesn't include abuse of any type. Holy and dearly loved by God, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, humility gentleness and patience. Our churches should be the safest places on earth. These places should be places of refuge, restoration, hope and love. As the people of God, let's commit ourselves to live spirit-empowered lives of holiness and love towards one another, to protect and to care for the vulnerable, to mourn with those who mourn and to live in a way that would honour God. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, today is probably not an inspiring message. It's probably not an enjoyable message. But it's an important one. And Lord, as we come to Genesis 34, we see the evil and the wickedness of humanity and the mess that our sin has created and We think of a young girl like Dinah and we realise that Dinah is one of many young people and people in general that have gone through abuse of all different types. Well, we know that this is not part of your very good design, but it's a consequence of our sin. And Lord, we are so sorry that it's happened in churches right around the world over many years. But Lord, I pray that we would take it seriously now, that we would show empathy to those that have suffered at the hands of another person. And that we would live differently so that we would represent you, that we would truly be a movement, a kingdom of redemption and love and grace and holiness. So Lord, I want to lift up any person here today that is living in the aftermath of abuse. The survivors of abuse that bravely confront every new day. And Lord, I pray as they do that, that you would be their ever-present help in time of need. That you would bring a peace into their life. And we know, Lord, through the brokenness of our lives, that we can find wholeness in you. And so I pray for a healing and a wholeness for any person here today, any person who's listening on the podcast, any person in our church, in our local community that's suffering from abuse. Lord, I pray that what's in the darkness would come out into the light. 
where it can be dealt with, where there can be compassion and love and justice for those that have done and are doing the wrong thing. Lord, we pray and we plead for our local community as we walk through our streets. Lord, I pray that you'd break our hearts for those that are suffering and that you would help us not just to be sympathetic, but to be empathetic. That we would step into the mess as your representatives and do whatever we can to be hands and feet of healing and grace and love. And so, Lord, I pray particularly for anyone in our community here and follow. Lord, it's awkward to come up the front for prayer, so I'm not going to encourage people to do that today, but I would encourage you, if you can hear the sound of my voice right now, to come and talk to me or one of the leaders in our church, and we would love to support you and encourage you. And we'd love to hear a testimony in time of God's grace and healing in your life. And so as we cast these burdens upon you, Lord, we sometimes feel helpless and hopeless in these situations. But we ask for your wisdom, that you direct us and guide us to be people who truly live for you. We pray this in the powerful and life-transforming name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.